Hello and welcome to another episode of No Holds Barred. Today I'm joined on the line by Will. Hello Will, how you doing? Hi, yeah, good morning. I'm great, how are you? Really good. I put out a tweet a little while back asking for people who had served in Afghanistan. Obviously, um, it's 20 years, I think. Is that correct? Till, since it is. we first went yep. into Afghanistan. And uh, there is now a process, seems to be unilaterally across everybody who was involved in that, to pull the troops out. I think I heard on the news about Biden saying that there are going to be, that there will still be a diplomatic, a diplomatic entity inside mm -hmm. the country but in terms of armed forces they're, they're going to be withdrawing and will um uh you you reached out and said yeah well i'll be happy to talk but before we get into that stuff um what, what's your role because it's really interesting what do you do so for the my uh, my role at the moment is so it's an organization called the jeff the joint expeditionary force um so that is a it's kind of an offshoot of uh of nato independent of nato but kind of guided and directed them to from the uh, a nato conference back in 2014 they said right you nato nations go away and join your own smaller groups for your own uh, mutual benefit so what the jeff is it's um 10 nations across the baltic scandinavia um you know, denmark iceland finland sweden health um estonia latvia lithuania um Norway, uh, there's probably one I missed out there, but so 10 countries. And basically we've got mutual mutual benefit uh, by joining together, sharing knowledge uh, and information and capability as well. So we can join if uh, one country needs a certain amount of expertise. And, and it's basically to counter any mutual threats that those countries that might have. Um, so on the front foot and primarily we're looking at what's called a sub-threshold activity. So by that, we mean anything that is um, likely to kind of not go to war, but the, the initial escalation to it, and it's a deterrence to to stop it going over that line to war. Um, so it's sub-threshold stuff is countering information ops um, and anything like that, that that is seen as escalatory but not mm. quite at uh, a war level. Would that be something like a uh, submarine entering the waters that are yeah, Norwegian? Yeah, exactly like that. You know, absolutely nail on the head, yeah. That sort of thing where it's um, it could be seen as provocative, you know, actions that kind of, you know, they say, you know, don't poke the bear, you know. Anything that is seen as slightly provocative, a little bit. And a good example recently is that aircraft that was um, impounded by uh, Belarus. It was going from, I think it's into Lithuania, and they, they took off it a, a journalist, I think. That's right. Now that didn't it didn't involve uh, any of the Jeff nations, so it didn't impact us. But had it done, hypothetically speaking, that's that's the very activity we'd kind of look to get involved in. It's and it's cross government stuff. So we're looking at what's called fusion. So you're using economic, military, and um, diplomatic means to try and find a resolution before going to war. Um, and that's basically what the Jeff is. That that was an incident. And like you say, a submarine straying into international water. Sorry, into um, non-international waters um aircraft flying into airspace that they shouldn't do testing the reactions of the the separate countries um so it's all that kind of stuff how we would react if uh, how these countries would react together and how we can form together to help each other yeah i uh, yeah that makes sense sorry I, so it's jet jet yes yes expeditionary force yeah Oh, Jeff, Jeff. Okay, so, um, yeah, so I understand that makes complete sense that there would be this agreement across these countries because um, it, it works better. There's a potentially a, co a common aggressor or a, an, an energy from a certain part of the world that might impact all of these countries together. So being together and sharing information makes complete sense. What, mm. why, what, what, you just mentioned about testing the reaction. What, what were they hoping for? So in this hypothetical world where... A country sends in uh, sends an aircraft to fly over a certain airspace. What yeah. what reaction are they just seeing? How strong the reaction is, and how much they yeah. get away with, or um, more the former than the latter. But yeah, probably a little bit of both. Um, so yeah, what you want to know is in any situation, you you want to know your adversary's capabilities, don't you? So um, yeah, you equate it to to football. You want to know how fast the opposition's winger is and how capable they are. So you watch them, you'll study them, you'll you'll kind of gain the intelligence so that you know if 
if you did have to go up against them, you'd know exactly how to to combat it. So, yeah, exactly that. So an, an aircraft hypothetically goes into somebody else's airspace. They would then probably set the stopwatch. All right, okay, how long does it take for them to, to launch, to get into the air and to be on our wing um, so we know exactly how ready they are. So it is exactly It's testing of capabilities to understand adversaries and know how to counter it. And what are you, so are you, I'm, I'm sure, I know this isn't the truth or, or what you do all day, but are you just sitting and around waiting for something to happen or things constantly happening and you have to be constantly firefighting different issues? Yeah, it is. It is constantly. It is so. Um, we're in now what's called an environment of permanent competition. It's a bit of a buzzword that's buzzing around defence at the moment, but it's mm. a lot of these sub-threshold activities are ongoing all the time um you know if you think about the the five domains as well so you've got the traditional three of land sea and air but as we've moved with technology you've now got cyber and space cyber is permanently active you know these uh the countries the adversaries are always poking at our firewalls when i say our um our friends as well you know the estonians yeah. like the Lithuanians, always poking at their firewalls to see what they can get away with what they can get into um and it's, it could be many countries. It could be what's called state actors, which is recognized countries. It could be non-state actors. It could be kids behind you know, laptops trying to see what they can get away with. So, yeah, it is It is a constant thing. We're not there sat waiting for something to happen. Uh, as such, we're always monitoring, sharing, learning, and, and countering when it does get to that level of, you know, it's, what's like I say, persistent competition. If it goes above that where they do go to that next level that's when we do take steps and, and start to to convene to, to understand how to counter those threats it's so strange that there are people like you that have this job like so <laughs> out out of my reality like we just people <laughs> people just bumble along and they just get get on with things and they go yeah. to work they get in their car and then there are people out there that are actually having these really important decisions and, and conversations I just don't mm. sure I'd be able to cope with it. How do you, how do you, how do, do you, um, it's, it's funny because I'm at, I've got, um, oh, it's strange because I, I've, I come from Lincoln originally. I'm living down in London now. Lincoln originally. I've got loads of, uh, good friends up there who don't see as often as I want to, but every now and then we'll get together and they, they've got what I term as kind of, you know, regular jobs, you know, bankers, post mm. office, you know, that kind of stuff. And they are, and it's quite like, they're all incredibly curious about what I do. And it kind of blows their mind. They say I'm some sort of spy, nowhere yeah. near anything like that. It's my role, whilst it might sound quite cool and a little bit sexy, what I described it there, yeah. my role specifically is kind of the linchpin, the link man between all of these nations, the capabilities. Um, so how do I cope with my current role? It's busy because there's always stuff going on. And there's a lot of nations who want to learn a lot of stuff. Um, but largely, we're looking at, you know, how we how we train together. So I've got like a, a four-year training plan. So I'm looking four years out of, right, Sweden, what are you going to do in four years' time training that we can perhaps join in with um, and we can, you know, train together for mutual benefit? So real kind of long-term planning stuff and looking at what capabilities are there in the future, both on our side and our adversary. So um, my current job is, dare I say, a little bit, administrative um yeah but you're, you're doing things yeah yeah no i appreciate that but you're you're the how good you are at your job directly impacts the the, the entire population of these countries well certainly folks like myself yeah um <laughs> absolutely people in in my roles in my line of work yeah 100 percent. there are people with far more important jobs who are a little bit more a term frontline um like a decision they make could affect something to the here and now um mm. so yeah there's a lot of a lot of pressure on some folks to do that um you know i have had roles um that have been like that where decisions you could make could could actually be life-saving life-changing life-threatening so uh, how do you cope with it it's interesting i don't know i suppose so much of it is reactionary you don't really think about it until after the event and then you just it's really important uh, mental health is a bit of a you know, a theme at the moment across many platforms, and rightly so. And it's something that we have to be mindful of in the military that we look after our mental health and decompress after we've had periods of stress like that. What so, do they do? Uh, what do they uh, offer you? 
Is it Sorry, say again? That what, 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 should you need it? What is it just counselling? Is it some sort of therapy? Um, is things no, available? It's more the, it's more the con yeah, so there, there's definitely things. There is support available for sure. Um, there are counsellors, there's mental health um, experts within the military. But I suppose what I mean really is is you, that we take the time out and we're, we're not only aware of our own mental health, but those around us. You know, I've got you know, folks that I work with where we are kind of trained to spot the signs and symptoms in other people. And like, you know what, mate, have you got any time off coming up soon? Because you look like you need a bit of a break. And it's just keeping an eye on your on your colleagues, on yourself, yeah. and just taking that time out. Take a week, take a long weekend, because you look like you need it sort of thing. So, yeah, oh, yeah. so it's like continuous sort of looking after each other. Yeah, I interviewed a, a woman who was a nurse in Afghanistan at Camp Bastion. Um, and she was there for, she did a six month tour, but then she met a bloke and, um, she had to leave to be with him. Basically he was a Marine mm. and they, they kind of, they met there, which was it's an interesting story. I interviewed her, but she was, uh, the, the thing that struck, struck me was like the things that she saw and bore witness to and, and uh, mm. the people she had to treat and uh, the things that happened within that tent weren't insignificant. You know, what she was telling mm. me would have been, would have been i think for me but very difficult to cope with um but she yeah. was she was um she said she never really she just got on with it it was like a a, a toughness mm. that was in, 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 in ingrained in her for, um, and, and her preparation through her training to be a nurse i think yeah. she, was, she was posted an order shot that that prepared her for for what she 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 went through and she she's only as she gets older and as a mother she looks back mm. and, and kind of puts her children in that position that she struggles with it but actually yeah bearing witness i was wondering like what if there is an answer to this what the military does to to, to hone the brain and i know there's lots of soldiers with ptsd and and, and there's mm. nothing that can prepare you for the stuff that some some of these guys and women have to see but is there some sort of mental toughness that is needed or is 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 is, is born bore into the the soldiers and infantry and anybody else who works in the military do you think yeah, I think so. I mean, I can only speak from personal experience. There's folks out there who've seen far worse than I have. I've, I've spent time in, in Iraq and Afghanistan where I've seen things that have been especially unpleasant. And, and at the time, you know, I think my first experience was Iraq 2003 where um, we, we were literally just gone in there. And I think six of our uh, UK uh, personnel lost their lives. I remember walking onto the aircraft where the coffins were loaded on to get a to get the flight plan into the um, into the cockpit, mm. and I was a young corporal at the time, and I walked off the, onto the back of the ramp, through past these six coffins, and I just remember walking off that aircraft so shaken, and it was kind of it was, I think up until then I'd seen being out in in that situation as pretty cool, pretty gung ho. I was young, I was naive, I was kind of like. Yeah, this is why I joined the military to be in these situations. And then, say so what when I when I walked on and off that aircraft, that changed because mm. it brought it all home. It brought that was the reality that those six men uh, were not coming home to their family. Well, they were, but you know, they were being repatriated and they were lost. And and that really brought it home. You can't. I don't know if you can teach mental resilience. You can be aware of things. It's about awareness. I think when you're seeing the signs and symptoms and, and knowing. Right, I need to take a step back here, otherwise I am gonna gonna go over the edge. And some people uh, do go over the edge, so therefore it becomes incumbent on others to, to spot those signs and symptoms and help each other out. So, yeah, they, they give you the tools to deal with it. And certainly, when you come back from those situations, um, a big part of it is decompression, mental health counselling, seeing a nurse. Each time I've been away to to areas like that, they make a point of right in your first two days of being back in the UK. You are to return to unit uh, and check in and and book an appointment with um, with the medics to and they will go through a, a bit of a questionnaire, hopefully open on a frank discussion, and they can assess where you're at and they can assess if you need a little bit more and they can signpost certain tools, certain people, places that you can go to. So um, it has got a lot better, I think, over the last few years as as it's become a bit more of a, a public domain. Topic of discussion. Um, I think it was probably not so much so back in in two thousand three. It almost felt like a bit of a um, dare I say a bit of a, a box ticking exercise. Yeah, he's yeah. home. He's done this. He's, he's filled in the form. Cool. Off you go. Have a good two weeks leave. Um, but I think now it's taken a lot more seriously. Rightly so as well. So, so we are we're given the tools. 
there's a shift, a societal shift towards mental health and, and speaking about mm. it and, and being open and at least acknowledging the fact that it is an issue. But in 2003, yeah. it would have been hugely different. It would have been it would have been massively different. So no, yeah, I pre- there's a stigma around it. Yeah, and, and, and especially you know guys in the army, it would have been difficult for them to open up. I'd imagine because of what a soldier is supposed mm. to supposed to be, and for you know come out of two world wars where you know stiff upper mm. lip and and there's a British yeah. way of behaving, which would you know as 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 you know it, it's, it's still to a certain degree. I listen to that and it, it does make me proud that my granddad was. You know, there was this sort of strong-backed sort of approach to this horrendous sort of escapade that they'd gone through. But when I used to yeah. speak to my granddad um, after the war, he never would talk openly about it. He never wanted mm. to speak about it. He was very closed down. He was a mechanic in the RAF, and yeah. he, um, he, <clears throat> yeah, he like he he just mentioned one thing, which I won't go into because it's quite graphic. But he mentioned one mm. one thing that he'd seen, and that was the only only thing he wanted to talk about. So. Yeah, everyone mm. to share rather. So, um, yeah, I think some of that, some of that British deal, if you like, that the idea of that is, may have been unhelpful. Going, going, yeah, forward, but yeah, and I think, um, like, let's like say back in two thousand, and certainly for for the army, you know, the, the young lads come out. There is this kind of, uh, and I think it still exists to an extent, where you're expected to to kind of be this stiff upper lip type thing, the bravado, macho kind of soldier image that's sometimes expected, I think can possibly be a deterrent to, to young soldiers to be open about their mental health. Yeah. I hope nowadays as as the the leaders, their seniors, their line managers and their, their officers, I hope that they are given the tools and the awareness and the knowledge to help these the young soldiers kind of open up a little bit and to, to break the stigma around mental health and being so open about it i know back in 2003 i i there were some some things that i kind of struggled with i kept them inside i wasn't open with them because i don't think the tools were there and there's not that there wasn't that openness now i think i don't think I'd, i wouldn't think twice about going to to speak to someone now if i felt that mm. um okay so just one more thing before because you mentioned it just previously i wanted to Mm-hmm. Um, just ask you about it before we go into um, sort of Afghanistan and your experiences and and then you know the wider issue of it um, you mentioned the cyber attacks being a huge issue in your job currently or, or something you have mm-hmm. to contend with um, do, so in order to combat that obviously you don't need you don't need um, you don't need a soldier to combat cyber attacks right you need someone whose brain works in that way mm-hmm. um, and you need someone I guess of comparable intelligence to the people that are creating these cyber attacks to understand them what, what did, did, was you aware of that process of recruiting people that are i can't think of the right way to describe them i'm trying not to be derogatory but you know like like more <laughs> computer uh, higher aptitudes yeah probably have much more higher aptitudes. <laughs> that's correct yeah. I, could, um, I could see where you go with it <laughs> yeah 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 so you know the, the people that, are, that understand this stuff um like and, yeah. and, and and yeah i guess how are they seen in the in the military oh, well I think as as we become more aware of, as I mentioned earlier, you've got the five domains, the traditional three, and then the new two, cyber being the big one. We've actually recently, in the last 12 months, uh, stood up a national cyber force. Um, so there is a specific branch of the military um, designed to you know, bespoke um, address the cyber threats, both defensive, uh, largely on the sort of defensive to protect the, the nation's assets from, from any cyber attacks. So, yeah, they are... There's so we've also got the National Space Force. Space is becoming a it's very much in the embryonic stage at the moment. But in terms of the recruitment, um, yeah, I think as folks are going into careers offices, they have aptitude tests. Um, they'll be kind of cherry picked, I suppose, for those particular skills um, and and go off into those. So I know certainly from our our adversaries' point of view, there are some countries um, far off to the east that have absolute like if you can imagine the size of an aircraft hangar um four or five of those in a row just packed with banks upon banks of, of desktops with thousands of people sat at them doing their cyber business uh, details of I'm by trade i'm an air traffic controller flight ops officer so i the cyber yeah. stuff is way outside of my skill set yeah. um but i know there are some some nations that as part of their defense force they have Tens of thousands of people absolutely dedicated to cyber, both on the offensive side and on the defensive side as well. Um, it's crazy. Uh, it is it's absolutely mind-blowing some of the 
the numbers. Um, I mean, have, have a, a Google how, of it. How do you, is this public knowledge, or is this something? Is this just information that's been collected through the years? Oh no, I think it's public knowledge. I think um, some countries like to. I mean, you see big um, military parades and stuff like that, don't you? So countries are countries that have these capabilities want to show it off because yeah. um, by showing it off. It also becomes a bit of a deterrent in their eyes, and I suppose in our eyes as well. We, we, we're very Brits, largely very proud of our military. We want to show it off at True. air shows and that kind of stuff like that. So it's it's not only you know giving a the positive view of it, but actually you're showing our adversaries. You know, we've got this cool aircraft here. It can do this, this, and this. You might want to think twice before coming across the border. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. that's very rudimentary, but no, so it. militaries like to show off their wares because it's a deterrent. So that, open source media, I think. As well. Yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah. This is like through, the, say, through the history. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you think back through, um, off the top of my head, you think of some of the huge military parades that um, – North Korea do, and they those are publicised on TV with their rocket source and their you know, ballistic missiles paraded through the streets. Um, Chairman Mao, I think, used to do the same. Yeah, probably not dissimilar in Moscow. I think huge military parades to show off their land forces, their air forces, their ballistic missiles as they parade them through the streets. You know, not only is that a a kind of source of national pride and kind of stirs people up, so you look at them, but it actually is they're publicising it across global media. And say, hey, look! Look what we've got. And the similar—it's harder to do that with the cyber force because it's a, a load of people at laptops. Um, but <laughs> so, therefore, I think there is a lot of open source stuff about um, countries. Um, I'm kind of speaking uh, about China's military capability on the cyber force. That was who I was referring to when I talked about these—you know—hangers of people, just thousands of people with cyber threats, and it's all open source stuff. So I think they're probably quite proud of that asset, and it's not uh, not a, a secret at all. Um, when you say a ballistic missile, what is it? Mm. Well, I mean, I've heard the term over and over again, like films and everywhere. What does it actually mean? Great <laughs> question. I wish. Um, my understanding of it is um, of a ballistic missile being a long-range missile. I there's probably people out there with far more knowledge on that particular subject than I. That is it. No, that's not. Um, we're talking long-range missiles that could be fired from. I don't know, I'm going to pick two countries. The center of Kazakhstan. And, and it could reach the the edge of you know Pacific America, for example. Um, you know, real long range stuff. Wow. There are probably, I mean, those are two countries I've plucked off the top of my head there. But uh, yeah. there are probably ballistic missile capabilities that can go um, from intercontinental ballistic missiles. It is a thing, yeah, for sure. Wow. And I guess by just showing those in a way. By showing them, they don't have to ever fire them. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I guess the same. The problem is, is how far it, that gets escalated, and that's the problem of sort of nuclear arms. Right? We're not going to use these, but we've got them just in case. And they're like, well, if yeah. you've got them, we want them just in case. And, oh, and then, absolutely. You know, and it becomes stop. this crazy. Well, it's, it then becomes an arms race, doesn't it? You, yeah. And that's yeah. You look at the Cold War. Um, I, I only know the rudimentary stuff about it, but it's just a case of America versus. Um, you know the the east ussr as it was then mm. um who's got the most nuclear missiles oh and by the way russia we've just plonked some in cuba so how do you like that america and yeah. It, yeah it is crazy and it's an interesting point you raised about the um the capability demonstration there it's like that's exactly what we did in the falklands we back in the falklands in the early 80s we had uh nuclear capability nuclear bombs we flew a we obviously didn't want to bomb buenos aires but, um, but we wanted to show that we had the capability to if we chose to. So what we did was we flew the Vulcan bomber from the UK down to the Falklands to to bomb the runway in Stanley. And the reason, you know, it sounds a bit crazy because we're bombing a runway of friendly forces. The reason being is because the Argentinians had fast jets that they'd flown across to land at Stanley Airport, which was in the middle of the Falklands, well, sorry, on the, to the west side of the Falklands, sorry, east side of the Falklands. Mm. Um, but so we flew that all the way down there, um, big mission lots of danger involved because you're basically just flying across thousands of thousands of miles of sea with no landing site um and we bombed the runway um with a vulcan bomber and and that was that i think it ended up getting impounded in brazil because it had to divert but the whole purpose of that exercise was strategically you're showing to buenos aires if we want to we can launch an aircraft from the uk all the way down to buenos aires with a nuclear bomb 
Now, obviously, we didn't want to, but it was a a deterrent, an escalation to say, if you, we've got these. Are you sure yeah. you want to push this further? Yeah. Um, it's Imagine being that pilot. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like Operation Black Bucket, it was, it's quite a famous uh, story of how they got down there. Lightning storms, because from the, oh, from the UK down to... Down to the Falklands, you are just going over sea, notwithstanding a little bit of land, uh, Ascension Island, some tiny little islands in between. But uh, no, I, um, I, w- I wouldn't have fancied it. I have an intense fear of flying, and I don't like the open ocean either. Um, so, and <laughs> if you add to that, the, a, a, a plane worth, how much would that have been worth? Like hundreds of millions of pounds, I'd imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, that's, that sets off all, all untold anxiety triggers. Um <laughs> Yeah, we did that. You mentioned you listened to it, the, the episode of Pilots, which is one of my favourite conversations. Yeah, it was really good, really interesting. And it, it was interesting as an air traffic controller, I could understand some of their, a lot of their language. And it was it was interesting hearing it from a pilot's point of view, because I'm on the ground giving yeah. the instructions to the pilot. So it was interesting hearing from their view. Um, right. So uh, Afghanistan, so you went to, how, what did you do? What were your tours? How long did you serve there? Uh, so I did four months uh, in Afghanistan um, as part of the uh, the NATO international support to Afghan forces there. Uh, my job over there was um, I was embedded with the the US Air Force, um, and my role was to my role was it's titled senior air director. Um, but ultimately, what I did was provided close air support. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain that in a moment. Close air support to, to troops on the ground who who needed it. Some close air support is if if you imagine you've got some some troops on the ground out doing a mission, and they suddenly find that they need unplanned air support because they've come into a bit of a hot spot. They're being fired at, or they can hear something on the radio that probably suggests they're about to be attacked. So they would call they would call my team up on the radio, give us the information. It was then my job to find the the nearest, most appropriate air asset aircraft to go down and help them to either deliver fire or even just a show of force or whatever. So, um, we so in the films when you've got soldiers that are under fire and they've got like in Vietnam they've got the phone and they're calling back, they're speaking to the, right. Yeah, yeah, they would be speaking to my team. So I had a, so each shift was a team of five. We had the radio operator at the front. We had someone who was who was kind of bringing up the the air picture. So a big, actually great big radar screen that would tell me where all the aircraft, where all the Allied aircraft were across the entire of Afghanistan. It would be then my job to take information from from one guy and the information from the other guy and put two and two together and work out what the best solution was and deliver it to to those guys. And we did it. It wasn't just British forces. It was all of the the NATO, you know, the the Americans, the Dutch, the Brits. Um, We even had a couple of Italian and Spanish. uh, I think the Qataris even sent some jets. And we were looking after all nationality troops on the ground as well. So it was a a multinational kind of effort to do that. So, yeah, it was a big job. Um, And at times... um, yeah, the, there were times in that job, actually, that you kind of step away from. And you, you mentioned earlier about how do we cope. You, there are times in that job where you can hear the guy on the radio being shot at. Yeah. Literally, you think, yeah, shit, I need to help this. We need to, as a team, help this guy at ASAP. Um, and, yeah, and it, it really opened your eyes to, to what was happening out there. There was, I would say, 90% of the time, um, good success rate um you, you get that one in ten it just didn't come off and through no fault of anyone's um you just get the the radio going cold and it's it's one of those things where you the room just goes silent and it's it's a very very strange feeling um but oh most God. of the time we were we were successful so when you say it goes silent that you'd never make contact with them until they were retrieved and they may be dead yeah, I mean, you just you never know at that end. I mean, it's 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 hard to tell um, because we were looking after um, people from the Afghan forces, American, Spanish, and so sometimes it would be sometimes it'd be something as simple as they change frequencies or the, their radios have got dropped and damaged and yeah. stuff like that because they're running and stuff. So it's not always um, it's not always that. The, the rule rule that we kind of worked to was if we got a if we got a call from one of the guys on the ground or the teams on the ground. And we would call it a tick, a troop, uh, TIC, troops in contact. And we would work to the rule of we need to get aircraft to them within 12 minutes. Otherwise, they are gone. 
that was how we worked it. And those aircraft could have been 100 miles away at the time. So we need to work super fast to get get the outcome that we want. Sometimes you get, because we were looking after the, the whole of Afghanistan on this air picture as well. Sometimes you just run out of aircraft. You, you, you get more troops that are coming into contact than you've got aircraft to support. And generally speaking, the aircraft are operating in pairs. So sometimes you make a ballsy call and you speak to the aircraft and say, right, I need you to split up because you've got troop A, call sign A in this location, call sign B 50 miles away is also getting shot. If you're happy in the cockpit, I need you to split up uh, and stop operating in a pair and go single. You're taking risks there because the aircraft become, yeah, the reason they operate in pairs is you know, they've got more eyes on the ground, they can look after their buddies, they can watch their six, that sort of thing. So you're taking extra risk by splitting them. But yeah, it was, it was, um, I was there during what was called the um, the poppy season, the springtime when it was really, really, really busy. Um, so on a shift of eight hours, we were probably getting about 60 incidents or so like that to deal with, as well as the routine stuff that we were providing air support for, you know, providing air support for convoys of getting stuff from A to B, they'd need aircraft overhead. Sometimes you have to pull the aircraft off, which stops the mission. And yeah, so it was a complex beast. Um, like I say, largely successful, but there were times where you just, unfortunately, you didn't get the result you wanted, and it was sometimes tricky to deal with um, you know, over how old, a busy four-month period. Second, sorry? How old was you at that point? Uh, that was 2015, so I was in my uh, sort of late 30s, 38. I was going to say, because um, that sounds like someone, you wouldn't put like a young uh, early 20s kid on something like that, right? You'd have to have so no, many years of experience. I had yeah, by then I'd probably been in um, like 18, 19 years in the Air Force by then. I did have young guys on my team, the, the radio operators, um, some really young um, US Air Force guys, brilliant people. Uh, and they were, you know, sometimes you'd need to go off. And it's in those situations when you've got a team, and this kind of goes back to the mental health thing. You, you look around your team and think, you know what, that's hit him hard. You need to go and take him for a, for a brew and decompress and chat to him and explain that everything he did was right don't blame yourself that kind of stuff um so yeah it's a big team effort a lot of camaraderie around it as well um you kind of have to otherwise yeah. you just don't get through it well yeah um so so you would um the, across you'd have a map a radar of of afghanistan the entire country mm. right and yeah. um, um and let's imagine that these uh, not imagine actually you can tell me <laughs> these uh <laughs> these aircraft you can see dots on this map and they're moving around i guess and yeah, or are they much, grounded yeah. do they, do, are they just are they in the air constantly and are, are they yeah so yeah, go you've got what's called um ecas which is emergency close air support they're they're basically on the ground on the on the tarmac cop, uh, blokes in the cockpit you know ready to go if we need them um they're they're kind of there you've also got um you know combat air patrols they are just up in the air kind of flying around waiting for the call but largely what you've got is you've got a series of of missions going on around afghanistan at any one time that are like i mentioned earlier you've got like um uh convoy patrols that kind of thing so you you've got a load of um you know vehicles trying to get from a to b to give them that extra protection extra protection you would plan the day before you'd plan to say right they're going out there. We've got an aircraft assigned to that. So it then becomes a big game of prioritizing and think, right, these troops that are currently in contact, being shot at, need that aircraft far more than that convoy does. That convoy can wait. So you take from one to another. It's a big um, it's a big game of prioritizing, shuffling your assets around. So largely speaking, yeah, the aircraft are already in the air doing other jobs. It then just becomes, becomes a case of, right, this oh. job becomes more important than that job guys you need to leave them we'll take the risk or they turn around and go back to base where it's safer until we have got an aircraft but at the moment we need you elsewhere so yeah the the waiting on the ground thing is not that common and it's seen as a bit of a luxury actually um because on the really busy day sometimes you're just crying out for for a couple of aircraft just sat on the tarmac ready to scramble but um no largely speaking it's just prioritizing what's already out there and they're jets are they these are like fighter jets pretty much on the whole yeah you've got the fighter jets um from 
many and diff- many different nations, but you do get some of the bombers. There's a, a B1 uh, bomber that we used. Um, I think that was based in Qatar, but they've got their range is, is a long way. So they can fly out from, from an air base somewhere in the Middle East, join us in Afghanistan, continually refuel and provide. So probably about 90% of our assets were fast jets from many different nations, um, but we did have a few bombers as well to deal with. Okay. Um that's that's uh, that's fascinating. Um so so it's been 20 years since we went in. Uh it's one of the longest it's got to be one of the longest longest wars in recent history. I think it's longer than Vietnam. Mm. Vietnam was 13, wasn't it? I think. I yes, think. yeah, it was. So it's a long time, but obviously there wasn't constant con- conflict uh, has there is what what I guess my question from from someone mm. who knows nothing about this stuff, right? Is 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 Afghanistan in a better place than it was before we got involved and the and the US got involved? And is it just a case, in your opinion, of the minute they're able to, the Taliban will just take control of the country again? And if so, what was the point? Yeah, yeah, no, great question. I mean, the reason we went in there initially was um, was a result of nine eleven, wasn't it? You know, Osama, they, the Americans have signed that Osama bin Laden and the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, were culpable, and therefore they evoked what's called NATO, NATO Article 5, which essentially states that all NATO nations that are signed up to this treaty, um, Article 5 says that an attack on one nation is therefore then defended by the others. You know, one for all, all for one type mentality. Um, because 9-11 was seen as an attack uh, by by Al-Qaeda, who was seen as the, the authority within Afghanistan. That was kind of the NATO authority to send forces in there, really, uh, rightly or wrongly, as we see it. I don't know. Um, the the mission was twofold, to go in there, find um, and bring to justice, in whatever way America termed justice, um, Osama bin Laden, and also suppress the Taliban slash Al-Qaeda um, to bring stability to that country. Now, there's all sorts of theories as to why they did it. When you do that, though, you've got the problem, as the Americans have often found it, you remove one lit set of leadership and that creates the vacuum. Yeah. How do you fill that vacuum? America filled it with, uh, was it Hamid Karzai at the time, who yeah. many people just saw as a bit of a, a puppet for America. A lot of the, the infrastructure contracts were, funnily enough, going to massive American companies. It all became a little bit like... Why are we here? Remind somebody, remind us why we're here. <laughs> mm. So uh, there was doubt over uh, Karzai's government, how legitimate they were, and, and corruption. I mean, arguably, there's as much corruption in the West, but corruption was seen as a big thing. So to answer your question, are they in a better place now? I don't know. Better is all relative, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it's hard to say. I don't know. I would hope so. I would hope, but. I think your final point was actually when we leave, does it just get to back where it was? My hunch is possibly, um, which does beg, beg the question, what's the point? Um, you see, so I think there's a big um, big thing recently where Camp Bastia, sorry, no, it's, what was it? Bagram Airport, which was just north of Kabul. There was a, an unceremonious vacation of that from the Americans last week. No formal ceremony or handover to the Afghans. It was basically just sneak out the back door quietly, um, hope nobody notices. That was handed over to the Afghans. Um, there was then lots of stuff posted on Twitter and YouTube from um, uh, basically, sorry, is it Al-Qaeda? No, the Taliban. Um, from the Taliban saying, well, all of the Afghan forces have just given up. They they feel no longer supported. They've handed in their weapons and they're joining us. It was a propaganda film, basically, whether that actually happened or not. But they're then selling the story that America have gone. The Afghan forces are giving up and they're rejoining the Taliban. And therefore, you know, just basically sell the narrative that in a few years' time, it will be back to where it was. Um, so, yeah, I, that was a long-winded way to say it. I don't yeah. know. I don't I would hope that it is in a better place, but I'm in the camp that if if the Taliban gain traction again, then yeah, it will get back to where it was. You know, we'll, we'll find ourselves, or Afghan will find itself in the same place in in about ten years' time once they've really taken hold. I guess I wanted to ask you as well, Will, is that um, 
when you're a part of the military, that is that by an extension a part of the political system in whatever respective country. And you mentioned about how everybody, that the whole of NATO had to go to war and come to America's aid or their their political agenda because they'd signed up to this pact that what attack on one is an attack on all of us. And that's, you know, I can mm. understand that in terms of a unity and it's a deterrent as well, isn't it? Because you have to deal with mm. every nation yeah. rather than just one. But as a soldier... It, 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 and, and someone who works in the military, you're, you're having to do what you're told to do or directed to do. When mm. perhaps you, is there everywhere you think actually I don't agree with this. I don't feel like this is the correct thing. But the law of the the ranking in the military is really important, right? You you have to be, mm. you have to do what you your, your superiors tell you to do, right? Yeah, you do. Um, but I think I think it's. It is encouraged now to have um, constructive questioning, you know, to, to not, not necessarily question your orders as such, but to, to ask the questions to understand why you're there. And if you've got the, the right leadership, they will, they will probably welcome that question to help inform. So, right, we are here. We are doing this this mission for, our, for these strategic objectives and doing this, this, and this. But I have had personal experience of, of when I've kind of I've both, A, understood why I was there uh, or, or could at least rationalize why I was there is probably the best way to put it. I can understand in my head why I was there. So, and that was kind of in Iraq in 2003, we went in there and my personal experience, I was a young corporal, I think 23 years old at the time. Uh, and it was literally with we clearing the tanks off the runway in Basra to, to get aircraft in there once we got settled in. And it was a very, very, very austere environment, hardly any support at all. We were sent out there with not necessarily the right kit and equipment that was kind of sent retrospectively after we were on the ground. Um, living in like on the airport terminal with 50 men in cot beds, you know, and women as well, of course, so on cot beds. Um, and you kind of think, why are we here? And then I got to speaking to some of the locals. Um, the the guy who, the architect for the airport, for example, the senior meteorology officer at the airport, Iraqi guys, and I was under, trying to understand them, and I was really keen and willing to learn how they viewed us. And and it seemed like, certainly in Basra, which is in the south of Iraq, as I understand it, and I might be wrong, but as I understood it at the time, Saddam Hussein kind of treated them um, with a distinct amount of disdain. He, he punished them. He had... Um, buildings where he would conduct torture towards his own people. And it was very much a, a as I understand it, a, a Sunni versus Shia thing. He did not look after the people of Basra at all. They they felt um, that he was not good for them. Mm. So they saw us as being in there. Uh, and the fact that he had he had gone, he'd been deposed and, and been caught. I think he was, he was actually caught whilst I was out there. Um, so I could rationalize that. I think here's people that seem to be, have been, Massively oppressed, their lives hindered, some of their family, friends, colleagues tortured, killed, go missing. And we were, at the time, welcome forces. So in my head, I could rationalize that, and that enabled me to kind of continue with what I was doing there. So that was in 2003. I then went back to Iraq in 2006. I'd been promoted to sergeant as an air traffic controller at the time. Uh, and things had really, the environment had really, really, really changed. We were quite often coming under rocket fire on the base you you'd be fast asleep in your in your tent at night and there'd be rockets coming down you just would not know where they would land sometimes it was it was opportunist rocket fire set on timers just aimed at our um our base sometimes it landed on tents and sadly so, people were lost so so sorry sorry, sorry to cut you so that, that's completely alien to me what what um so this is a guy with a rocket launcher on his shoulder and he's firing it or is it is it no, more complex than so, that yeah, so what what you describe there is what's called a, a man pad, man portable. Uh, I forget the acronym. Um, yeah. But what these were largely, I think, were old rockets that they bought from yeah, the old fall of the Soviet Empire that appeared to be from that kind of thing, where people buy them, they'll set them up on railings or a bit of, if you imagine a bit of corrugated iron. Right, right. so you, yeah. put, a, put a breeze block under it, you created a ramp, set four of these rockets up aim it roughly at the airbase, set a few, set a timer, walk away. Six hours later, they go off and they will land roughly on the airbase. So it is all completely, um, you, they, they are not accurate. Um, you maybe get six or seven land at any one time. So generally speaking, it was that kind of thing, um, as opposed to somebody with a, you know, a shoulder-launched rocket. So it was utterly indiscriminate. We, 
they didn't know where they were going to land. And because around Basra, it's completely flat. Um, it's just desert for miles and miles and miles around. The only thing you can see from a probably about, I don't know, 10 kilometers away is this great big enormous air traffic control tower that sticks out the ground. If, you, if you've ever been to the ski pole uh, in Amsterdam, it probably looks not entirely dissimilar to that, just a slightly older structure. You know, it's stuck massively out of the ground. So yeah, they would use that as the rough aiming point. Um, as an air traffic controller, that's not the great thing to be aiming. <laughs> but um, so... But yeah, you'd be sleeping sleeping in your beds at night and you would hear. So there was lots of acoustic um, detection equipment set around the base. So you would have um, these sensors around the base who would detect the sound before um, it was actually coming. Uh, they could, And they would then trigger these things called, I think they were phalanx guns. They would just basically spit, for, they would work out the trajectory of the inbound missile or yeah. the rocket, sorry. Um, from the the acoustics and all the the clever technology in there, and they would just launch an absolute firewall of bullets towards it to try and knock it out of the air before it lands. Um, largely speaking, they were successful. Um, some of them did make make it through because they can only hit so many at any one time. Mm. So yeah, sometimes some did get through, land on the runways, land on the the tents, and and it was yeah, it, it was a, a quite a. a an eye-opening, hair-raising experience, if I can be honest. So you're um, in bed. You're in bed, right? And and the mm -hmm. detection system goes off, and all of a yeah. sudden, because you can't hear the rockets from that far, right? The the no. The, so no, no, not this, not until they land, really. This system. So they're silent as they go through the air. Um, you can hear it as if they were to go past you and overhead. You can hear like you can you can kind of hear they're not entirely silent, but you wouldn't get much warning as soon as you hear them. They're pretty much either going overhead. Yeah. Or yeah. going past you. Yeah. So you're lying, lying in bed, and then suddenly the guns go off, and you'll think, "All right, we're we're under attack." Yeah, yeah, pretty much. You, you'd hear this siren, and even then, if I if I hear, it sounds like some fire alarms, and if I hear it now, it still gives me goosebumps and quite an unpleasant feeling. It's generally um, there's there's YouTube footage of, of people who kind of film it. You you basically, if you're in bed, for example, the the standard operating procedures are put your helmet on, put your body armor on, lie on the ground, face flat. And just hope for the best, pretty much, and just hope that it does not land on your tent. Oh, and if it does, hopefully you've done as much as you can to protect yourself by face down on the ground, helmet, body armor on, and it will protect you from the the shrapnel, which is the bit that's probably going to get you. Basically, as these rockets land, there's um, grooves in the casing of the rocket that are designed that it, when it hits and it explodes, just basically fires off a ton of like just a load of little razor blade like blade like shards. Um, out on a blast radius and it will get you that way it's like a pipe bomb yeah that same sort of theory yeah absolutely a pipe bomb is exactly the same just a, just, a more rudimentary design do you not think um, so, that that's crazy to think and i'm sure we've done it as well is that, that whoever's designed this instrument has made it as deadly as possible and I, I know it's a missile right it's designed to damage but that so, that a damage a building is you can get your head around right but to, to create grooves in the chassis of the the rocket to so that it spreads out yeah. that that's mad it, to me it's really it, it is when you, like there's some um so as we go through our kind of education you know i started off in the ranks and then went down and commissioned as an officer and when you go through your your education you, you're kind of taught about uh munitions and and this kind of technology and it is quite harrowing actually how much thought and detail goes into what is essentially designed to do as much physical damage to somebody as it possibly can i don't necessarily mean the brits we're, we're taught about munitions and weaponry from our adversaries you know there's a there is to give you an example there is a um, a type of uh anti-tank munition that is designed to penetrate the armor of the tank and with enough force exit through the other side and it creates such an such a, an overpressure in the tank it pretty much vaporizes what is in there and i, I use the word vaporize kind of loosely but yeah um it will yeah so anything What's, that is in that tank it will just completely obliterate it so and it doesn't tank, even have to touch it so tanks are pressurized no so um what happens is as the munitions pass through it yeah the the explosion creates pressure a huge amount of pressure right. in there and then it passes out passes out the other side and just basically drags it it's going through at such force such velocity that as i understand it and there's probably people out there who probably picked me up on the details of this um mm -hmm. as i understand it it just goes through at such force if you imagine um 
lightning as it goes through the air it creates that vacuum it just and then yeah. the, the thunder is the vacuum being filled kind of similar theory yeah it just passes out the other side with and it, it creates such pressure inside so the tanks themselves aren't pressurized okay. but the the munition passing through it with such force such speed from velocity with an explosive charge creates pressure inside essentially a pretty solid tin can yeah that's another thing that's scary it, that yeah yeah the the technology and the thought that goes behind some of the weaponry and munitions it's it's mind-blowing to the point of being a bit disturbing yeah 100 it is dis it is disturbing it really is um you mentioned that you would learn uh the british military teaches you um a, through through your adversities but do do we not adopt similar sort of do we not have weapons that can that, that aim to do the same thing um well, thankfully, there are. You've got the the Geneva Convention, which it governs. Um, is it the? Uh, I'm trying to get my treaties here. Ottawa. So the Geneva Convention. Uh, that's human right. The Ottawa Treaty, if I'm right in thinking, is um, governs munitions, and I think specifically things like landmines. I mean, yeah. there are some landmines out there, and they're designed. It's not just a case of step on it, boom, it it blows your foot off. Some of them, you, you will step on it. It fires upwards, up into the air to a certain height. It will then you know, blast with a certain charge that will pretty much cut you in half. Um, I'm kind of paraphrasing the, the actual no, term slightly, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's um. So there are treaties that we have signed up to um, that many nations have. Uh, I will say that America hasn't which is a little bit disturbing um mm. we have as brits we've signed up to to treaty because war is horrible nobody likes war but war should be conducted in within certain rules it sounds crazy but you want to play fair um in war you don't want to go to war but if you have to, absolutely have to you want to play fair and some of these weapons and designs are just seen as not that largely because some of them are indiscriminate and they affect civilian populations. So what you don't want to do in war is is affect non-combatants and stuff like that. So, and I'm talking largely. This isn't my personal opinion. This is basically how war is seen. It's you know, it's got to be just and fair and appropriate and proportionate. Uh, those are all the kind of things that we're kind of taught as we go through these you know the, the colleges to educators on on war. Um, so therefore, the munitions and the the weaponry must fit those kind of criteria. Is it is it just? Is it proportionate? Uh, it shouldn't be indiscriminate at all. It should only affect those that you're wanting to. These would influence what I mean is stop, kill, maim. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, the the Brits, thankfully, I'm quite proud to say as a British military officer that we have signed up to many of these treaties that do govern. Um, munitions to hopefully make sure they're fair i am not however a munitions expert or indeed a treaties expert but um politically we try and keep within the rules if you create a rocket that fires shrapnel in every direction then it's not indiscriminate it is indiscriminate isn't it it's uh it could yeah. impact anybody and if if in you know it was i think some of the i remember watching on the news i don't know if this is true and i'm going to butcher it but i put it out there anyway um that that there would be uh, some forces in in schools or hospitals mm. where they would kind of hide there and use the the, the building yeah. or, or the people in really the sh shields, which make makes it very difficult for British yeah. soldiers to attack. Yeah, that's a really good point you make, and that's kind of another thing as well. There are as part of these rules rules of war, I suppose, if I'll term it that way. You know, you don't target you don't target hospitals, schools, um, population, urban populations. Um, places of worship those are no-go areas at all they should be so but and this is kind of what we we spoke about back in the in the start of the conversation where your adversaries want to test test your not only your capabilities but how you operate um and if they if our adversaries don't necessarily subscribe to the same set of rules they will bend the rules to suit their needs so they will go and park a load of uh munitions in a, a place of worship knowing full well that we will not target that because that is not it's not what we want to be seen to be doing for a start. It's not fair. It's not right. But they know that, and they will probably find a, a, a disused place of worship, perhaps, and I'm speaking very hypothetically here, um, and start create a bomb factory in the basement, knowing full well that we wouldn't want to target that building. Um, yeah. So, 
yeah, to have rules of war, you know, not everyone plays by the same rules, and therefore you exploit the loopholes if you want to gain an advantage over your enemy. And it's it's very strategic thinking from both sides. Yeah, I mean, you can you can kind of understand it if you if the Western militaries have every advantage in the technologies and manpower, yeah. and then they have to be creative in how they can get a foothold as well. But which yep. is these ethical issues are sort of grade significantly by when the when when war breaks out. Um, mm. I think. Uh, okay, so this, I think that's a nice segue into um, how you think the British public view the military generally. Mm. Mm. And I can give you my opinion afterwards, but what, what, how, how do you feel? Um, so I ran a couple of uh, social media accounts representing you know, Armed Forces members, and largely speaking, um, I'm really pleased to say that folks are are understanding and supportive of, of what the British military personnel are doing. Um, a lot of folks come to us so I think to answer your question really quickly is I feel we are are very well supported um, across the population with a, a handful of people who are extremely against what we do and they have their own reasons which I understand why um, and then another handful who just want to be belligerent and don't necessarily want to understand why for no apparent reason. There are some folks out there who I understand have reasons, have historic um, you know, things and experiences as to why they don't. But on the whole, my experiences are, are very positive. Um, I do counter, try and counter the negative with rational talk and, and debate and not argument, because I think if someone truly feels and believes something, I don't want to argue with how they feel, but I want to give them the information to hopefully increase their understanding of the men and women in today's armed forces, not the armed forces of the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, or beyond. Today's armed forces is what I'm representing. I can't count, you know, speak for the other. So I think we are well received, well supported. Um, quite recently, I took a, a team of armed forces people doing a, a community project. We were in uniform in North London. And the local people were really curious. They, it was brilliant. It was they were very warm, very welcoming of all ages, all ethnicities coming up to us. So, what are you doing here? Um, wanting to know about our roles, and and we asked them here similar questions back, you know, about the community. And so we were very well received then. And I think, largely speaking, um, yeah, it's it's positive with pockets of negativity. Yeah, um, I, I would I would I would agree as well. Um, uh, from from an outside perspective, I think most people are quite quite proud um, of mm. the military, the military that we have in 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 the UK. Um, uh, and do you know? I tell you what. From my perspective, it, mm. I, when I when the Iraq War broke out, and I was young, and I was very, I opinionated, and I had my idea about the way, the way the world should be, and, mm. as a, and I would have been like a twenty. Well, uh, well, twenty, yeah, twenty, twenty. When when September eleventh happened, uh, and I was very much against the war. I, I didn't think that we needed to. We we should be in there. I do, I felt like um, it was something that was. Uh, I thought it was a bad, a bad thing, a bad decision, and and mm. and, and I wasn't happy that it was happening. I was really angry with George Bush, mm. and I was angry with um, Tony Blair for what felt like mm. him being a puppet towards it. Now, oh yeah. I was so there was there, there's huge amounts of ignorance and youthful. Uh, I can't think of it. You know, you kind of you're very sort of angry and you, most protests protests come from from students and and people that are young because they have a much more idealistic world view of the world, right? Mm. And that was that was definitely me. But I also yeah. appreciated as I got older that the 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 political will of a company completely dictates what soldiers do. And you mm. can't, as a soldier or, or a member of the military, go. Do you know what? Nah, I'm. I'm. If, if there needs to be a kind of a, a a machine that can kick into gear, should something happen, and the anger should, if you have any, shouldn't really be with soldiers. In my opinion, it should be with the people that make yeah. it, putting those people there. That that's that's where. Yeah. Where, where, where and a lot I, of people, a lot of people, uh, and I kind of see where you, where you're going with that as well. And I agree, it's not. But I think some people out there will, will counter that point. Um, and I've presented that thing, saying, "Well, you could say, well, we're just doing our job." Um, 
you know, there's there's historic examples where that quote has been used in quite unpleasant situations. But you know, and people will count that and say, well, you know what you're joining when you join up and blah, blah, blah. And what I try and encounter that with, you know, with those that are willing to, to discuss it is actually – you know what? For every for every Iraq in my 24 years in, there are so many humanitarian operations, whether it be the um, the earthquakes in Nepal, the even down to the. Do you remember the uh, was it the Yorkshire Moors that were on fire not so long ago? There was loads of fires spreading across, and basically deployed loads of troops out there to, to put the fires out, so to keep the civilians safe. When people are stuck in in the snow or with yeah. floods, the first people to go and help are the military. COVID, for example. Along our NHS colleagues, so many military personnel involved in the logistics of all of that stuff to help to administer the testing and stuff. Like that. So it's those kind of things that I say. You know, I get. And I was. I'm absolutely on the same page with the the Iraq War. Like I say, I could kind of in 2003, I could rationalise it because I experienced and, and engaged with some of the locals there, so I could understand the 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 oppression they had received on, on the hands of Saddam Hussein. But when we went back in 2006, and the tone had changed, it was a lot anger and more hostile and i kind of i was there thinking why are we here we've asked it is so obvious that we have outstayed our welcome we should not be here um, and that was my personal view at the time in 2006 when i was kind of on the receiving end of the the rockets and stuff i couldn't i could no longer rationalize any good reason why we're there because the locals um three years on hadn't really seen much in the way of any improvements they had turned against um the allied forces in there so yeah, I was I was in the same same camp. Could no longer rationalise it. I didn't think we were there doing anything particularly good. I felt as though we were there being a bit of a puppet for America, mm-hmm. um, and those are my. But that said, those are my personally held beliefs. I was I was there because of the the job that I was doing. We are the military are as you mentioned earlier an extension of the government. We were a tool for the government's strategic aims. Yeah. We are politically agnostic as we are not aligned to any political party. We, whichever government is in power, whether it be conservative, Labour, whoever, we're their tool to use for whatever aims they choose to. So, yeah, Yeah. suddenly Tony Blair kind of centred in. But so, you know, that said, you could also counter those points for the world. Actually, World War One and Two. If you want to bring up historical, you know, stuff to to say why we're such, you know, you mentioned about how well we've been received. Only in the last fortnight or so, the the social media account that was receiving DMs calling us, um, that was it, food killing murderers. Uh, I like, you know, uh, those people is just no point in engaging with, um, mm. because they've clearly got uh, their own their own just views, don't, and I don't think anything yeah. I say will shake that. You know, no matter how much I talk to them about humanitarian aid and the help we give to civilian authorities and all that stuff so but yeah that is in the minorities uh, thankfully in the minority um you just mentioned and this is my final question the um the strategic aims of a political party or, or or a country and i guess you look around the world and there are countless people that are in need of uh support from outside mm. forces don't get it because it doesn't align strategically with what that country wants um or it's just the the outcome the fallout of getting engaging and getting involved would be catastrophic um i'm thinking specifically and i'm not sure if you can um Mm. comment on this but the the stuff that's going on in in uh china Mm -hmm. uh, and um you know there are people out there that need help but you the, the thought of the thought of the UK or the US sending military force into China is is something that would, I mean, that would be a terrible idea. Yeah, yeah, it's it wouldn't. I agree. The mil- militaries per se should be a force for good to help those that need it, that are being oppressed or you know that that really need the help. Yeah, you mentioned the example in China. I would love the United Nations. I don't think it's a I don't know how NATO, I don't think it would have to be United Nations and not NATO. Um, I'd love the United Nations to stand up and say, you know, something needs to happen. Let's be firmer here. But as we all know, China is a huge political, sorry, a huge military force with hundreds upon thousands of uh, you know, personnel. The capabilities are pretty reasonable. Um, so I don't think it's a, it's a fight that the authorities are willing to pick rightly or wrongly. And it, um, 
yeah, and it's it, we, we should be. We shouldn't be. There are a lot of examples where the Brits are out there. You know, we've got folks in Somalia, in Nigeria, uh, across Africa, where we are helping train their people to give stability to be able to look after uh, the population there. So, which is good. But then that is also could be termed by an outsider as well. That's an easy win. You're going in and you're helping areas that, you know, they've, you're not going to get much opposition to that. You go in and help the Uyghurs of China. Of course, you're going to get a heck of a lot of political, economic, and military opposition. It's going to come from all directions. Um, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Yeah, and that's that's a shame, isn't it? Because you can't just go and help because of, you know the, the potential fallout yeah. would be huge. And um, it's where global organisations like the UN should really be kind of stepping up and stepping in, but I don't think they're willing to pick that fight. Yeah. I've just Googled because I wasn't actually 100% sure there was an embassy in China for the UK, mm. um, but apparently there, there is. Um, but its Google rating is 3.4 out of 5, so I'm not sure what they're doing wrong over there. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> I'm not sure. I'll have to check the feedback out on that in a bit. But yeah, no, we've got we've, so embassies, we've pretty much got embassies in every every country where within those embassies you've got a defence section. Uh, and you have got military people stationed within those areas. You know, there's there's folks across absolutely every country you can think of that would have a defence section. So um, yeah, there's some some cool jobs around the world for folks like myself to get into the embassies if we can. Yeah, where where, where do you see your your military career going? Like, at what point can you go? Right, that's it. That's enough. Like, I guess um, it's quite a financial question. Uh, you know what? Yeah, yeah it, it largely is, and it's it's a timely question with with all COVID and stuff like that. So I've been in coming up to 25 years it'll be 25 years next spring um and and about two years ago i was reassessing where i'm at thinking you know what i'm at the age now where i've, I've got enough in the tank to, to 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 leave the military and go and work in another organization then covid happened and impacted aviation massively it also created a huge amount of uncertainty across industry and and all that stuff and that and then around the same time i got promoted and with that promotion came an extension to the age of 60 so i've got a contract up to the age of 60 if i want it mm. so so that gives me and my family the stability so where i see myself going is i've I think I've stepped away from the traditional kind of being on a, a flying station doing the air traffic control stuff. I quite enjoy the international engagement side. The stuff that I'm doing now, I kind of would like to see myself. I've spent a bit of time in South Korea on exercise over there. There, The embassy in Seoul is, is somewhere that I would love to get a job. So embassy work, international defense, international engagement, that sort of thing, building bridges, making relations, the kind of political diplomatic circles is where i'd quite like to go and and if there are jobs like that that would see me through till 60 then i think i'd probably be quite happy there does your wife know that you want to move to south korea she does she actually <laughs> yeah so she yeah, she does we've discussed it she visited as well so we just to, to do a bit of a recce and check it out so um yeah no it's we're quite um quite an adventurous couple and would would absolutely go and live uh, or have options to go and live elsewhere so yeah no it's it has been discussed Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much, Will, for your time. It's been really interesting. Thanks for sharing so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.